Welcome to the Emotional Curriculum with me, Dr. Sarah Taylor Whiteway. Randall Curran, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Rochester. In this episode, we explore how Greek thought and self-determination theory can help structure schools that engage students, motivate them based on their own values, and may reduce the need for punishment. very much for coming on the emotional curriculum and talking to me today great to be here so to get us started what's interested you in this area of research sure um i've been doing this for a long time um on and off um it goes back about for me it goes back about 30 years and studying ancient theories of law and the relationship between law and education and uh, ethics or moral development in the ancient Greek world, and realizing that uh, ancient theories of law, at least in in the in the Greece uh, Greece, was uh, very different from a modern uh, understanding of law. In the modern period, we tend to think of law as a coercive instrument of government, and in in ancient Greek thought. It's much more the idea that law is itself an educative um, device, that uh, a good system of laws and good administration of laws uh, is actually educative. Uh, The ideal is that we would be learning really important truths about what it means uh, uh, to treat each other well, um, uh, how, how to get along and uh, and live together in a productive, happy way. And so what do you think these Greek way of law can teach us about how we punish in society today? It was a, a hugely important idea that societies bear a responsibility to educate first, to enable people to enable people to act well. <laughs> Um, before punishment could be appropriate. And that assumes that we don't come into the world as perfectly rational, self-controlled creatures who can just say, ah, okay, that's right, that's wrong, and and then act accordingly. So some people think of um, the law pertaining uh, to young people as just a matter of knowing right and wrong, but ancient Greek thought, it's largely uh, more subtle than that. And it, it's largely about um, self-management and whether you have the capacity to act well. Mm-hmm. Um, some of it is having enough experience to be able to discern more subtle aspects of what are good and bad ways to act, better and worse ways to act. But a lot of it is about that capacity to actually act in a way that would be reasonable. And I was connecting that 
to modern research about brain development and the development of the executive uh, function, executive control functions in the, in the forebrain. So we know that young people <laughs> are highly suggestible. They don't have as much ability to think about future consequences and act accordingly. Um, you know, they're impulsive. Uh, those, are, those are characteristics of young people and also of, of prison populations. So to make the link here, you're talking about how we can use this idea of teaching from Greek law as an alternative to punishing that could be linked to how we can support children and other people who have difficulties in their executive functioning. And how did you apply this idea to your research? So what I've, what's new and what I've done in this paper for the first time really thinking directly okay, if we have to engage in something like punishment in schools, how should we be doing that? What should the rationale for that uh, be? And there was a certain point in working on it where it just became obvious to me that the most important thing I could do would be to rethink the psychological um, conception of a just school community. And so that's what I that's what I realized was the most important thing I could do. And your research really builds upon the ideas of Lawrence Kohlberg. Could you talk us through some of the work he did? It's in the work, the seminal work of Lawrence Kohlberg in the 60s and 70s about about moral development, where he visits an Israeli kibbutz. And on this kibbutz he sees um, a school that's run as if it were a mini democratic society. And, and the children are involved in democratic uh, structures of governance in the school. They have a, a weekly um, council meeting. It's like the weekly legislature of the school meeting and debating about what the rules of the school should be disciplinary council, eight students, two teachers. So the students have four times as many votes and the teachers are there to kind of manage the process and encourage them to think about things that might be important to think about. But still, the student-dominated um, council where they are hearing cases, disciplinary cases, deciding what the punishment will be and then overseeing the administration of the punishment. And Kohlberg was deeply impressed by this. And, and I think like other psychologists I've worked with who aren't political theorists, when they think of justice, they think of democracy. And so they kind of equated the school having these democratic institutional structures with the school being a just community. And so you start to think about what contributed to a just society as well as a democratic approach. Well, yeah, I mean, so I have, I'm, I'm presenting a revised conception of a just school. Uh, so I've, I've had the wonderful uh, privilege of being a colleague for 30 years of uh, Richard Ryan and Ed Deasy 
who co-created self-determination theory really literally 50 years ago. And it's grown into the most comprehensive body of psychological theory and research about human motivation, what, you know, why we act the way we do. It's grounded in, a, in an account of basic psychological needs. And, and it turns out not only are those needs really important to motivation, the fulfillment of those needs is very important to people's um, absorption of the values that the world presents them with. So that's really important. Um, Kohlberg's model didn't have anything like that. Um, he had the idea that if schools are democratically just communities and they're fair to students in them, then they will tend to accept the values of the school. That was essentially what we called social learning theory, and that's built into SDT, uh, self-determination theory. So self-determination theory is saying that there are these needs that individuals require to motivate them, but also the fulfillment of those needs dictates whether the person will accept the values of the school around them. Um, so what are the needs that are the foundation of self-determination theory? There's a need for to be positively socially connected with other people. There's a need to experience ourselves as competent. I mean, people really need to feel competent most of the time or they're just miserable. So if you have a school where half of the, half the students in the school can't be above average and you set up the rules of the school so that you only can feel proud if you're above average, then we know half the students in the school are going to feel bad and they're going to be low in the this, in this status system of the school. And uh, they're going to be they're going to be experiencing a frustration of a basic need and where we know we need to satisfy all three needs. So the third one is is a need to be self-determining in at least some of the activities of our life. And that doesn't mean that we're independent and there are no rules. It means that we're it means that we're acting from our own values that we accept as our own values, values that become part of us, and using our own judgment about how to engage in the activities we're engaged in. So the competence need, that self-determination need, and the need for positive uh, relatedness. We know that all three of those need to be satisfied or people become very frustrated and unhappy. So, so the, my, a really basic point for me that comes out of this, if you want things to go well in schools, if you want kids to engage in learning and be well-behaved, that psychologically that begins in making the school a place that's good for kids to be. And that means, first of all, a place where they can satisfy those three basic psychological needs. If you don't give them a way of satisfying those needs within the rules, they're probably going to be trying to satisfy them outside of the rules. So it's really a move away from using punishment to control behavior and thinking about whether those three needs are met, the need to kind of be autonomous, the need to be feel 
relatedness and connectedness to others and the need to feel competent, when they're met, the child's behaviour, the young person's behaviour will meet your standards because they're motivated to do so. That's right. Yeah, that's 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 ex that's exactly right. And so, and we know there's a very very high uh, correlation between and and causal connection between kids being frustrated in their schoolwork and them having disciplinary problems. And so if they're frustrated and and not doing very well in their schoolwork for whatever reason, that's going to be frustrating. That's it's going to make them feel bad. And they're going to tend to misbehave. And so when kids are engaged in learning activities in a way that kind of flows along for them, there's just the internal structure of the learning activities, you know, that is structuring what they're doing. Um, it's when they're not engaged in learning in a way that's flowing that they're kind of, all right, you know, they're looking for something to stimulate themselves with or get attention or something. And of course, there are other problems. Kids, you know, kids are coming to school these days with a lot of stress. They may, they may have all kinds of problems outside of school. And, you know, uh, some of the schools in the United States that have very, very strict disciplinary regimens, they just lay down requirements like you, you must smile uh, and say good morning when you arrive at school. And it's a no excuse school. So, I mean, we have firsthand accounts from teachers who've taught in these schools and they'll see a, a child arriving at school whose uncle has just been killed, you know, or a parent who's been uh, imprisoned and they arrive at school and they cannot make themselves smile. And it's oh, no excuses, you smile and they're just sent home. So they're sent home and given no, not even the opportunity to say there's something going on with them. And so I know some people have had the opportunity to apply your work um, in the schools that they work to address some of these problems you just spoke about. How has that been? A former student of mine who's had a chance to run three experimental schools based on my work and, and self-determination theory He's doubled the graduation rates um, at his schools against the background for uh, for very low level of graduation in his community. And his approach to discipline just begins with talking to kids in a sympathetic way. What's going on? Why did you, you know, you know that, you know, you shouldn't be doing that. What What's going on with you? And it's a, it, when you approach it in a problem solving way, open to there being many things that could be going on with a child that you don't know about. Um, the evidence is you can actually solve the problems and be much more successful than just imposing punishments as if the punishments are things to which children can rationally respond and say, Oh, okay, I don't want to be punished. So I'm going to do better. I mean, sometimes it works that way, but often it doesn't, you know, because you know, it's more complicated. So I was wondering if you could give any explicit examples of schools like those you've just described, of things that they do that really embody self-determination theory. Yeah, sure. So it's, it's helpful if schools have a mission beyond just children outdoing each other. 
if school is just about all of us trying to get ahead, implicitly that's trying, we're trying to get ahead of each other, or maybe we're trying to get ahead of the kids at the other school, but it's just about individual um, advancement. Um, that's a harder, I mean, you can motivate some kids to, um, to achieve that way, but you can't motivate all kids to achieve that way. Again, especially the ones who are not going to be above average. So if you want the school to go well on the whole, it's very helpful to have a defined school mission, which makes it about something, something more than just our individual success. Nobody experiences their lives as meaningful unless they think that there's something worthy of their attention, worthy of their devotion that they can be pursuing. People go into journalism wanting to be able to tell, communicate the important stories to the public. I mean, they think there's something valuable that they can contribute to the society. To do that, you have to feel yourself on a pathway of acquiring the capability to do that. You have to feel competent in your steps towards that. You have to perceive and accept for yourself the value of that pursuit. So there are all these ways in which schools, by having a larger mission, by being oriented not just to skills and knowledge, but to the value of things we can do and do together in the world, um, creating a credible belief in progress towards such lives, that's helpful. And so a school should embody a mission that really speaks to the things that the young people at the school value for their future and really helps them see how school is working towards those things that are important in their future and that are really meaningful for them and, and that's going to motivate them in being engaged with school. And what do you think this says to us about punishment in schools? We need to be using that authority to advance children's sort of rational self-determination or prudent self-determination. And punishment, I it could if it comes with the right things, there are forms of punishment which might advance that. You know, I mean, sometimes you need to slow kids down, but it needs to be slowing them down in a way that's getting them to focus on how they're making decisions, why they're acting the way they are, and acknowledging, getting them to acknowledge that, okay, these are not things they should be doing, and helping them learn how they can do better, how they can make things right. So that might qualify as punishment, but it's a formative, educative form of punishment that should be helping them be able to give them the capacity to do better. And so your work is trying to promote this just, fair school society. How much do you think that your work is trying to address inequalities in the way punishments are administered in the school systems at the moment? I mean, I think the principles I'm writing about are have very wide application, but I'm writing, I am writing with specific reference to the American context where there's, um, I mean, a, a race, racialized patterns of discrimination at every, every age level. Um, 
in punishment, right, up through schools and into a, a adult, um, uh, very high levels of incarceration. So, I mean, that is one of my one of my concerns is is the children who there are, you know, so black and brown children tend to be perceived by many educators as dangerous, right? As threats. They don't enjoy the benefit that others do of, uh, of being presumed um, innocent. Uh, they're just perceived as more threatening. And so the tendency is to give up on them uh, pr quickly and not just perceive them as just as educable as anybody else. And so we, I mean, we know um, different children, uh, yeah, black and brown children be perceived as more mature than they actually are. They're sort of rough, essentially they're perceived as already older and more capable of acting well than, than white children of the very same age. And so it may not be intentional discrimination, but there's an implicit bias that revolves around stereotypes of who's just inherently dangerous and where you just have to punish them. So I think part of the task of getting schools to function as the kind of communities I'm talking about, that's attuning teachers to these facts about implicit bias, about cultural stereotypes of dangerousness. Yeah, you've raised such an important point there about implicit biases and how actually the way we set up our schools can challenge those or just to raise awareness for them is a really important step to take. And so for teachers listening to this, what would you want them to take away or what thing would you want them to think about in response to our conversation? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, think, the, I think the foundation for success the simplest way I can put it is to is to uh, create a need supportive um, school environment, and you you support the need for positive um, relatedness um, by being open and responsive to every student, by trying to enlist students in in collectively uh, talking through and defining norms for the classroom that they would find acceptable and uh, uh, trying to bring them to, to buy into them. We, we accept values where we understand the reason for accepting them. Uh, that's maybe an underutilized <laughs> psychological fact. Uh, yeah. We support uh, the need for competence with the right kind of scaffolding and creating the sequence of challenges at the right level for each child to the extent we can do that. Um, can't expect everybody to be at the same pace with exactly the same instruction. That's challenging, but, but good teachers uh, learn how to, how to do better with that at least. And, and supporting self-determination, it means Children have to have some choice. They have to feel that they're acting from their own values. And so what I just described and then having a school mission that they, that they are on board with. I guess just the last thing I could emphasize is the idea of how important it is for kids to 
perceive themselves as being on a sort of pathway towards a towards a, a desirable future. And whatever schools can do to support them in that is is really important. I mean, it's so it's a sort of social contract between the society and every person. Is if the society doesn't provide us all with a decent opportunity to live and accept to live acceptably well, to live a decent life, you're going to have a lot of trouble in the society. That's going to predict a lot of things that you don't want and how people behave. And so the school is not just has to internally have function as a just community. It has to play its role within the larger community, the larger society, playing its role to invest in every child, to help them along a pathway in life that they can perceive themselves as making progress. If they perceive themselves as making progress, that's powerfully motivating for them to stay out of trouble. Thank you so much for your time today, Randall. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening. There'll be more episodes in our Pedagogies of Punishment series coming up over the next few weeks. If you like the episode, then please do subscribe and follow us on Twitter at emcurriculum. And you can email us on theemotionalcurriculum at gmail.com. See you soon.